Hello and welcome to episode 51 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and this week, Dr. David Flatt will be continuing our hard questions series with the question, what if I doubt? So what if I doubt? Um, as a Christian, obviously doubt is a part of that. It is a uh, belief system that requires faith, and faith is, uh, is a belief in things that are unseen. Uh, and so we'll get into that. So questions of doubt, why we doubt, is it okay that we doubt? And uh, David will do a wonderful job with that. So let's jump in right now with the hard question, what if I doubt? So whenever we can, I want to be in the text. So uh, we're going to start in Matthew 11, and I want to try to talk about doubt from Matthew 11. And let me just say on the front end, um, this is kind of like a, I guess it seems to be like this sensitive, awkward topic to talk about among Christians. And um, I really don't think that it should be, and I think the fact that it is is really to our detriment. And so let me just say there may not be anybody in here who's in kind of a season of doubt and questioning of their faith, or we may be in a room full of that. Um, That's really something that I kind of wish we knew about each other, kind of where we were at, and so we need to do a better job of that. Um, But I just want to say, like, even if there's not anyone in here that's, that's thinking like that, we need to be creating faith communities where people feel comfortable talking and asking the real life questions because if you don't think um, when people have questions and the church or the church family is not willing to ask them those questions don't go away so they're going to ask those questions to their friends at school or um, you know google search or there's just a lot of bad places to get answers about uh, the world and so we, we as a Christian community to be open to having conversations that maybe don't seem as natural but are really important. So I think one of those conversations is, is about doubt. And so how does the role of faith and belief kind of accompanied by doubt, how does that interplay um, exist or not exist in the life of a Christian? So that's what I want to talk about tonight. So we'll start uh, in Matthew 11, and I'm just going to read kind of a long section here, Matthew 11, verses 1 through 19. <clears throat> When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to preach in their cities. Now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you get out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? 
It is like children sitting in the marketplace and coming to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Okay, so it's kind of a long passage maybe it's kind of hard to put all kind of what's happening in the narrative but the short story is John the Baptist is in prison right he's been arrested for kind of being a troublemaker preaching against uh, the authorities and so they've got him in prison and he's discouraged because John sees himself as this one foretelling of Jesus so you know he says he's got that famous phrase like behold there comes the Lamb of God to take on the sins of the world so John thinks he's introducing Jesus thinks he's inaugurating this new kingdom and now here he sits in prison so he's discouraged and he has his disciples go ask Jesus what's going on like well I'm sitting here in prison and we're supposed to be like inaugurating the kingdom go ask Jesus is he really the Christ is he the one that we've waited on because I, I thought he was but you know I'm, I'm sitting here in prison and so that's kind of where I want to start us off. So the first idea here is to, to consider the things that John the Baptist had seen and done with Jesus. So John, up until this point, he had done everything from introduced Jesus to the world. He had baptized Jesus. He'd seen the Holy Spirit literally come down out of heaven um, um, and, and signify Jesus as his son. He'd seen some of the miracles of Jesus, the crowds around Jesus, really the start of what seemed like an, an exciting ministry. The kingdom seemed to be coming. You know all those Old Testament prophets we talked about? They're awaiting this Messiah who's going to be a king, who's going to be a prophet, and who's going to be a suffering servant. They kind of think of three distinct people. I think in John's mind, though, he sees we got a king and a prophet here. Like he, Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies. So why am I in prison? So he tells his disciples to go talk to Jesus. And so yet, so John, consider things that John had seen and done with Jesus, yet even he, in a time of suffering in prison, had doubts and questions about who Jesus was. So let me just assure you, Christian, if you're in a spot where you can't quite figure a couple things out, like you're in good company. Je- Jesus literally says, there's never been a person born who's greater than John the Baptist. Okay, And then here's this story in the same chapter that Jesus says that, where John the Baptist has, has doubts about who Jesus is. So this idea that you cannot be uh, beloved by God, an important part of his kingdom, because you don't quite understand something or you have doubts about something, um, that's not what Scripture teaches. So I like, I like this quote by Alistair McGrath. He's a, a famous preacher, and I think he's said some really interesting and helpful things. But he says, Doubt is natural within faith. It, become, it comes because of our human weakness and frailty. Unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It is, a liber- it is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. It's a really cool sentence there. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. And so I think his... Um, his contrasting there between the difference in unbelief and intentional decision to live um, to reject Jesus Christ and what he stands for is that's different than doubts that accompany faith the longing to be sure of what it is uh, that we, we hope for so faith doubt doubt and unbelief how do these all fit together so the causes of doubt what may be causing John to doubt Jesus at this time in his life 
So why is John sitting there in prison after he's seen Jesus do all these things? Why is he doubting Jesus? So my guess is that it may be many of the same things, sure, double blank there, same things, that cause us to doubt now. So I don't want to pretend, you know, to be given kind of trite, simple answers to maybe questions that you are or aren't experiencing or that you know people that are or aren't uh, experiencing. But I think um, we can kind of put some some reasons for doubt into three categories that I want I want to talk about tonight. So the first one we'll talk about is difficult situations. So difficult situations. In Matthew 11, John is in a tough spot. He's literally in prison, about to have his head cut off, right? Like tough spot. It's been, a, it's been a tough week. He has gone from faithfully preaching the message of God to sitting in a prison cell. He's probably hungry. He's lonely. He's poorly cared for. He's awaiting his execution. And so isn't that kind of what life is like for us? When things are great, um, it's kind of easy to trust the one who's in charge of taking care of us, right? And when things are bad, I think that's a likely time to say, Jesus, I thought we were bringing about the kingdom. Like I thought, I thought this was about like your victory that that I was sacrificing for. I was like eating locusts in the desert for. I was like preaching this kingdom come, sacrificing because I believe in you. And now I'm in prison. Like this is difficult. You know why did it go down like this? And so here's our first discussion question: Why does the weight of doubt often grow in the midst of suffering and struggles? Yeah. Sort of like, I, well, I kind of like set you up for this, and then now I'm suffering over here. Anybody would feel that way. Right. So then you start to think, well, was I wrong? Did I make the wrong decision, you know? Yeah. I think we, we kind of, whether we like would admit it or not, we all kind of have this theology of like, like it's give and take, right? So like, all right, you've asked me to live in this way that requires some levels of sacrifice, but I'll do that, and you'll take care of me, God. Right? And um, some churches actually, actually preach that, <laughs> um, but you know, it's really bad theology for a lot of reasons, and that's not what the Bible teaches. So we're not God's pets, right? But we kind of, you know, I would never preach that, but I may live that way. Like, it's God's job to like take care of me and keep me fed and um, make me comfortable. And as long as He does that, I'll kind of I'll run on this little hamster wheel, you know. And uh, that's not that's not the role of a disciple at all. Anybody else want to say anything? Suffering, struggles, bad things happen. Someone that you trusted was unfaithful. You know why does that? Why is that such a hard thing to kind of faith? Okay. Well, the second reason I'll say is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. So again, John had been spending his life preaching about a coming Savior who was prophesied to bring freedom. So I think, you know, we talk about all those prophecies. There's this prophecy in Isaiah 61 talking about this coming prophet, the great prophet. He would bring freedom to the captives, 
You've heard that verse. He's, the Messiah is going to bring freedom to the captives. John had inaugurated the beginning of this guy's ministry, and now he was in jail, <laughs> right? So he's, I mean, you got to like sympathize with the guy. Like this is really a raw deal. Like kind of looked at from human perspective. This was not the day that that he got into med school or made the score that he wanted on the test or landed the job or got to go to New Zealand. Like this was not. You know, this is not the day that the kind of all his work had, had come to a head and a fruition the way that he had imagined. Now John, sitting in prison. We can't, blame, we can't blame John for feeling a little discouraged and wondering why things were not going as he had expected. So difficult situations, I think, is a big cause for doubt. Another one is unmet expectations. You have expectations about what your life's going to be like, and so often that's not the way life is. And so there's just another discussion question. Why is it easy to question God and His plan when things don't work out as we had hoped? I think because we like, grow up hearing, like, ask and shall receive. Mm-hmm. God wants to give you the desires of your heart. And then when you like, make them known to Him, He doesn't give it to you right away. I, I used to just think, oh, He's not there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's... I mean, I've heard that story before. That, I mean, I know have some friends that have kind of lost their faith over stories similar. Yeah, that's tough. I think it's because we kind of barter with God and we say, like, I'll do this, I'll sacrifice this, so the promise that I'll get something out of it later. And you like, feel like you're holding up your side of the bargain, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, you think you you didn't. Like, maybe you thought I had these great plans of how I was going to do things for you because I made these sacrifices, but usually it's that you're yeah, especially when we talk about like your relationship with God is just relational in general. And you think my part of the relationship is this, and your part of the relationship is this, and then you just end up getting disappointed over what your expectations were of the relationship anyway. So then you end up you have unmet expectations based on like the way you view your relationship. That's good. I don't share this opinion, but a guy I really respect in college um, taught a Sunday school lesson about how the book His Needs, Her Needs was like such a disaster because it kind of has this paradigm, right, of like, I will figure out what your needs are and I will meet them, and in return, you will meet my needs. And, of course, this paradigm is that's not Christian marriage. Um, and I, That's not exactly what that book teaches, but... Christian, that, that kind of thinking is not what Christian marriage should be. So it's not like, um, it shouldn't be like I'm, I'll go 50%, you go 50%, right? Like I, Christian marriage is like I'm all in regardless of what you do to, for me. And so that's, of course, the, uh, the metaphor there. That's, that's us and, and, and God or Jesus and the church. We're married, so to speak. And so um, we're not faithful so that God will give us blessing. So yeah, I think kind of what you're saying is like bad theology is, that's one of the reasons I think this Bible study is so helpful is ba- bad theology is a lot more popular than good theology. And so this theology of health and wealth, do right, live, do these things for God, say the right prayers, you know, trust in Him, He'll give you blessings. And you take some verses out of context, and you can, you can kind of paint the theology through Scripture. If you're not looking at the whole picture of the story of the Bible, you pull this verse out, and, this, and you can kind of tell a story like that. And so I think it's so important to counter that with good theology. The Bible does not promise us health and wealth. 
fact, if it promises anything, it's it's suffering as we follow a suffering servant um, for obviously an ultimate goal that's far beyond you know anything this world has to offer. I think it kind of relates to something Kyle talked about last week. It's a lot easier, like when things are good, to say you know like, oh well, it's bad theology, it's bad you know like mm-hmm. bad interpretation. Like from an intellectual standpoint, it's very easy to say like, you know, doubt grows because we are incorrectly understanding God's word. But um, it's kind of—I think it's a lot harder whenever something bad happens. Sure. Like yeah. even if I recognize that it's not like a I do this for God, He does this for me relationship. Like when something bad does happen, uh, like our emotions kind of take over more so than our like intellectual interpretation. Yeah. That's a good point. I'm kind of intellectualizing something that's really not, I'd say not even usually, an intellectual deal. Yeah. Yeah, I think about moments in my life or maybe in, in friends' life especially, but when there's like deep suffering, it's you're not like thinking through like reformed theology or like how that, it's, a, it's more like a, God, how could you let this happen? You also want somebody to blame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's natural. Mm-hmm. That's good. Good thoughts. <clears throat> okay. So I think difficult situations, unmet expectations, and then I think limited perspective. And I think this is, a, I don't know if it's the most important, but I think it's a really important idea. So you think about John. John had no idea that as he sat suffering in prison, God was working through the circumstances of his life, the same circumstances that John was so frustrated about, to bring about the glory of God and the redemption of the world. So John is sitting there in prison as a testimony to what God is doing through Jesus Christ. The very act of him going, sending his disciples to go ask Jesus, what are you doing here? And, and are you Jesus um, elicits or inspires Jesus to give this great sermon back and then a couple of John's disciples become Jesus's apostles right so this this exact process and the suffering that John is currently undergoing is part of a larger plan that God is fulfilling and so I think there's just kind of a call for humbleness in the midst of suffering uh, from a Christian worldview and again I'm, I'm intellectualizing here I know but uh, you know, the understanding the backstory I think is, is helpful. But from a the Christian perspective, God is working something in history that's a lot bigger than whether or not David is happy and content tonight or in this moment. And so I think we've got to be um, cognizant, just like John, um, just like God was working in John's life, God's working in our lives to fulfill a, a larger purpose that we can't see. And so suffering... Um, can you explain why any particular suffering occurs? Well, no. And I think trying to do that is is unhelpful and, and sometimes even hurtful to the person who's suffering. That's not what Christians are called to do. But God is working together through a suffering world to accomplish purposes that are far beyond this world. And we're limited in the perspective that we can't see that. So let's talk about that. Why is it so hard in the midst of difficult situations to trust that God is working through history in our lives for His purposes? So think about Romans 8, 28. Um, and in all things, God works, together for, God works together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. That's hard to believe, right? That's one of those like coffee cup verses. 
But like, man, I just can think about a couple times like in our life or friends that we really cared about or people that we really love. I just think, man, is God is this is this good? Like, is we got are we working together for good here? Because this does not feel like good tonight or this morning. Um, because that's hard to believe. And so maybe you just kind of comment on why is that so hard to believe? Should it be hard to believe? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can just like see our lives as this like just big story and we get so fixated on that whereas in reality like, our lives are just a very small part of like the very large story so there's yeah. like a limited perception I think we just have like a very narrow focus instead of the wider focus I think sometimes it's just that doesn't seem true mm-hmm. you know I mean I think of like you know, little kids getting cancer, so I'm just like, I, I don't, and to be honest, like, if I have a doubt, that, that'd be one of them, like, is this a universal verse, like, I mean, so, perhaps it's just perception, or perhaps it's just what our focus is in terms of what we think is good, so, you know, good in terms of an ultimate sense versus good in terms of a kind of temporal, like, experiential sense, mm-hmm. like, those are different things. Yeah. When I see a kid that's four or five with cancer and the family's just completely wrecked and then the family gets a divorce and everyone around them doubts and you know, can kind of tear up. I'm seeing the good here. That's, that's like harsh. But I don't know. There's just, there's too many examples like that where it's like these sort of like arguments of like, well, this is for good become very difficult. And so then you're sort of like, I don't know. You'll see it affect a kid like a certain age. There's like certain ages where things will happen. You can see kids just completely go the other direction. It's like, had that not happened, would they still be like doing the right things and good things? You know, I don't know. Of course, that I, like intellectually, I would come back to well, like I get that my perception is very limited. Like I get that, just like mm-hmm. Johnson in prison, but it's it's still just super tough. The big the big answer, of course, is like the point of life is not really any of that it, you know it's, it's something very different but that's still so hard mm-hmm. especially I think when a verse like this is attached to it well God works you know good and everything it's like I don't know about this but I think it's misunderstanding what that even means so I don't know what this means but I can say that in every like really hard terrible maybe like limited number of like those kind of things in my life that I think at each time I knew in my gut that God was working or could work, but that didn't mean that I didn't like viscerally hate the situation. Yeah. I didn't know like what to do about that. Like I actually hate like hated it. But if you would ask me what if I didn't really believe it was gonna work or like God was working in it, I'd say like I know that's true, but it doesn't mean that I don't actually hate it. You know, and like that's hard too. I think one reason is that why why is it so why is it so hard in these difficult situations? I think that's when it becomes like a decision of whether you're like that's like when you are gonna be faithful or not, right? So like it's super easy when things are great to be like, oh of course, you know, like I believe in God, He's working through the good. Mm-hmm. But like when that bad thing happens, that's when you actually have to make the decision of like, do I believe in God or am I like am I gonna be faithful? Because if things are great it's it's super easy to say, you know, oh, of course, God works mm-hmm. for the good of all, or whatever. Uh, but when things are hard, that's when you actually have to 
decide whether you believe that or not. Because um, like if I get into med school and I'm doing great and I'm engaged and I'm going to be married, and of course it's super easy to say, yeah, God works for mm-hmm. you know for the good in all situations. But I don't think that that really gets put to the test until you have to decide whether that's true or not. I'm just trying to think of how to answer this question, like a God working through history, and how we've been studying like the story of the Old Testament and the big picture. Mm-hmm. And like I know we worship a personal God, but also a, like one that's working throughout history over, like what we're looking at with like judges or kings. He's working over generations, and there was times where things were really bad that we were reading about, and like generations were going, people getting murdered, and it's all part of God's plan of him working through history. It's like how much is it? I guess of like God's working through us personally, but then at the same time he's like has a surface level plan of saying or like what he's gonna reveal in the end. That's what I was gonna question on. No, I think that that raises the point I <coughs> I don't know if I can make this effectively, but I, I, the point I wanted to make is I think the the key question is what is the good? So God works for the good, but what is what is the good? And so I think Almost all of us, you know, live in 2019 Western civilization, the most, the safest, most prosperous society in the history of the world. Man, the good is like my beach house and a nice car and a good job and like you know a couple extra weeks of vacation and a healthy family. That's the good. Uh, but of course, that's not what God. What is the good? The ultimate good is the glory and relationship with God for as many people as possible throughout the history of the earth. And so I, I think that you could make, I mean, if we had time to kind of sit through and kind of think through it from like a philosophical perspective, I think it's true that only in a world infused with suffering would the greatest number of people come to relationship with God. And um, I, I, I guess for tonight, I'll just kind of leave that sentence out there. Maybe we can kind of dive into that some more later. But um Here's maybe another way to look at it. If you look at the places and times in history where the greatest number of people were coming to faith in Jesus and radically living for Him, I think you're going to find this suspicious correlation that it happens to be the times and places in history where there's the greatest suffering, the greatest poverty, the greatest uh, dislocation of people. Those are the places where uh, the human heart seems to be receptive to God and His story. And so if you look at 2019, the earth in 2019, that story is exactly true. Kind of late capitalist Western society seems to not be as interested in God (laughs) as before. But you go like to the the southern and especially the southeastern hemisphere, like Christianity is exploding. And uh, those are exactly the places in the world where there's more poverty and there's more suffering. And um, there's something about the human heart and and what the good is and when we're willing to, to listen to it. It's kind of more than I wanted to say, but I think there's something to that. One thing that a lot of people, like who aren't Christian, would say to that is like that those people are just hoping for something. Like they're just holding on to a dream that things are going to be better. Yeah. And I think that's something that like I've kind of always struggled with, like a response to. Because in a way that seems true, like they are just hoping that there's going to be a day where things are better. Because like here, everything is so great that (laughs) we really don't have to hope for it. I mean, we do have to hope for a better day, but we might think that this is as good as it gets. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but that's not sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, like in the wager, it's really easy to <laughs> yeah to give up nothing right when there's something great that's on the line. 
So it's it's why it's hard for rich man to enter the kingdom. I think it's, it's just it's hard, man. Things are so distracting, and I think that's why you see in Europe and the United States you see increasing like numbers of atheists because it's like you know there's no there's no need for something more than what we have presently. Um, I don't know if that discounts their faith because the source of it is in a need for hope. Right. But I, I understand intellectually what they're saying. It was easy for you to say, you know. Yeah. Because you got nothing, you know. Um. So we're the ones that are weird, not the rest of the world. Um, the way that we live and experience life is not natural. So the, the natural human condition is um, is, is suffering and, and straining to get through day to day, and the heart longs for, for hope and something better. And so something about kind of our society really dulls, I think, the spiritual conscience to reality. And um, I think it's harmful. It's been harmful to the church. It's harmful to families. It's distracting from what really matters. That, so that's one point to be said. The other point to be said is I think we've got to be careful when we look at impoverished people or less educated people um, and just assume that, oh, well, they believe because... Um, it, you know, there probably is some truth in what you're saying, but there's also, I mean, those are people made in the image of God that the Holy Spirit is working in to do powerful things, and their faith is real. And, um, yeah, you see, like, a, kind of the ivory tower atheist sitting in his leather chair smoking a pipe, saying, well, they only believe because. And, I, you know, I just kind of roll my eyes. You know, you don't, you don't know these people and their faith. I want to be. Go ahead. I was just gonna say. I mean, I've heard it said before. It's like I think it was said to Dawkins. It was like the same thing could be turned around and said to you. Like the only reason you believe what you do is because this has been your up. Right. So what's the difference? Like it's not really a strong argument. Yeah, I mean, technically, that's called the genetic fallacy. <laughs> like assuming, uh, assuming a conclusion based on the circumstances of of the uh, person making the argument. Okay, well, that's some good discussion. Um, so let's talk, maybe that's the causes of doubt. Maybe let's just spend a little time being practical and talk about how to confront doubt. Okay, so this is like shot on a cell phone in 2006. Say, this, yeah, this is not a, this is like, this is some student. He was like, yeah, he was like speaking at a, at a campus and some student like before the speech saw him in the courtyard and was like, hey, can I ask you a question? But this is like the greatest grandfatherly wisdom like I mean maybe I've ever heard on this topic so it's, it's five minutes it's a little bit longer than normal uh, but this is just really good stuff and uh, has been really helpful to me and so we'll watch this and I'll make a few quick comments and then we'll be done All right, so um, I think that's really helpful, and um, <clears throat> it's almost one of those videos like you ought to watch it a couple times because at first it kind of seems like flippant, but I think it's really wise advice at, at a bunch of levels. So I'll let. It's also pretty awesome that the time William Lane Craig says you'll never answer all your questions. You're like, great, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so William Lane Craig says you can't answer questions. Um, okay, so um, let's talk about how to confront doubt. So these are four. Four uh, ways I think that the, in a Christian community we ought to confront doubt. The first is with biblical revelation. 
So Jesus confronts the doubts of his cousin John, not by berating or belittling him. So, you know, I don't, maybe this isn't the right audience to, to, to say this to. Maybe it would be. But if somebody comes to us and they have doubts or questions, the response of Jesus and the response of us should not be condemnation or critique or there's something wrong with you. Um, a couple of times in Scripture, someone came to Jesus with doubts, and Jesus was always opening and welcoming to them. And in, in the case of John, he points John back to Scripture. And so um, I, I think a helpful place for the Christian to turn in crisis is to the Word. And so John, but by reminding him of, of the promises of God found in his Word, so Jesus quotes in Matthew 11, he quotes Isaiah 35, um, the blind see, the lame walk, um, the, uh, the captives are set free. Right? He quotes this verse about what's happening when the Son of Man comes. And he's saying, look, these prophecies are being fulfilled. We cannot biblically fight doubt without a foundation in God's Word. So maybe you want to like, have doubt and you want to fight it in like a secular way and you want to like you know get a get on wikipedia and you want to like you know do a research paper and kind of trying to intellectualize all your doubts i'm not saying that's necessarily wrong in fact i talk about how, how i think that's important but we need to understand that the, the word of god is powerful and and uh it should not be ignored um, even in a time when you're questioning its truth Okay, second, intellectual humility. I think this is really important. We need to be willing to admit to ourselves that our knowledge is limited by our historical perspective. So we only know the scientific world as we understand it in 2019, right? Which is different than how it was understood in 1919. And this newsflash, it is different than how it will be understood in 2119. There's no doubt our grandchildren will say, you know, Papa, you're so 2019 one day, right? We, we are a product of our age, our culture, and um, that's been true of everyone. So I, I think a little humility there is needed. We're not at the end of history, the generation that has finally solved everything. Um, our kids and grandkids will make fun of us just like we make fun of our parents and grandparents. Well, it's limited by our, our historical perspective, our personal and cultural biases, so I, th I think this is kind of what we were talking about a second ago. Like um, we say, man, you know, people who are, don't have anything to lose in this world, they believe because that's the only way they can get hope. That's their bias. Well, of course, our bias is we don't believe because we live in a, in a culture of wealth and prosperity that we think we can accomplish everything ourselves. And so it's so easy to see the biases in everyone else in the world, but, but not your own, right? If you're wearing orange-colored glasses, you don't recognize that the world the whole world's not orange right you just think that's the way things are and then finally our knowledge exposure and so this is just a a, a truth about we don't know what we don't know so um kyle knows infinitely more than i do about teeth and straightening teeth and vice versa all around the room right we know things that we um, have spent time and exposure to knowing and so we need to be humble enough to recognize when when there's a spiritual or theological question or doubt that we're not sure what the answer to is just because I don't know the answer doesn't mean there's not an answer and I think that's um, I think it's really important which kind of leads us into our third point rigorous rigorous inquiry so how do we confront doubt the third way is rigorous inquiry we should be willing to love God with all our minds 
And so we need to honestly pursue the answers to questions that we have. I think in our kind of skeptical age, it's kind of cool and hip to ask really good questions that are, are critical and skeptical about institutions, especially re religion. And I think that's actually fine. God is more than capable of all our questions. What's not fine or fair, though, is to, is to come up with a good question and be unwilling to pursue or listen to a good answer right and we do that I do that all the time make some kind of sharp critique of whatever and assume because I said something um, there was a good quip or clever that there's no response and there often is I just say this really really smart people have been working on this Christian thing for like a really really long time and so the idea that you're gonna think of some question that hasn't been dealt with by Aquinas or um, or any of the, the, the church fathers or great church thinkers through the ages, or William Lane Craig, is, is, I think the chance of that is really low. So maybe you don't agree with the answer, but we ought to, you ought to look at it before you just say, I have found the ultimate question that you know, no Christian can answer. That's a little disingenuous. And then maybe this sentence is a little harsh, but I, I think it applies. Assuming that there are not good answers to our good questions is intellectually naive and arrogant. So the idea that, that I can ask a question that... Um, that no one can answer, there's no response to, that's silly. And, and so if we're going to ask good questions, we ought to be willing to at least listen to see if there's good answers. And then fourth, and maybe even most importantly, I don't know, is we confront doubt with authentic community. So in, in some ways, that's what I hope uh, tonight in this group is about. So John apparently shared his doubts with his closest friends. He asked them to help him find answers. Pictures God's people handling both physical and spiritual struggles. We link arms and share burdens, like in Galatians 6. We share joys, like in Romans 12, of life. And then we work together, Hebrews 10. We give, Acts 2, and we share, Romans 12, to overcome together. Christians do not struggle alone. So I like to say Christianity is a team sport. Right? This, is, this isn't track. This is baseball. This is, uh, this is football. This is a, a sport we play together. And we all have different gifts. Some of us... <coughs> You know, just like in sports, some of us play different positions, um, but but we do it together. And so, let me just kind of say, like, maybe this is a little more direct and personal than the rest of the lesson. But listen, if you're in a spot where you got like a question or a doubt or or whatever, like, don't do that by yourself. That's never. That's not the picture of how Christian community interacts. I'm, I, this is not me saying, oh, well, come ask me the question. I'll know the answer. I, pr I probably don't know the answer if you got a good... But let's, let's pray about it together. Let's, let's struggle through it together. Let's, let's read and, and study together. But let's be together as a Christian community. And then let's also challenge each other, the other Christian communities that we're a part of. Let's be a part of creating a spirit of, of authentic community in, in those as well. So let's be a part of creating churches that rely on the Word and trust um, God's Spirit to interact in our communities, to be faithful to the gospel, and to, to ripple out and reproduce those communities to accomplish the Great Commission. So, um, big picture thought is that doubt is a part of the Christian life. It's not contrary to the Christian life. And God can use your doubts to bring greater glory to His name and expand His kingdom. Thanks, David, for doing a great job with this lesson. If you're in the Memphis area, you're a medical or dental student, and you're looking for a Bible study, please consider come seeing us. 
Uh, this is the MDDDS, the Memphis Doctors and Dentists Discipleship Study meets at my house here in Germantown. You can find out more about us on Facebook, or you can reach out to me, Kyle Fagala. I'd be happy to make an introduction and uh, an invitation to our group. We'll be back next week. We'll be returning to the Old Testament, and actually Michael Vrakar, one of our members who's a dentist, he'll be teaching for the first time on some of the prophets, and in fact, I think it's like 10 prophets, Uh, so we're going to be jumping back in the Old Testament and covering a lot of ground. That'll be great. Thankful to Michael for being willing to do that, but that is all we have for this week, so I hope it is a wonderful week, and we look forward to having you back on this podcast and in person. See you soon. Bye-bye.